0: Hi there, and welcome to the Android Bytes Podcast, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick. And every week with my co-host, Michelle Rahman, we're diving deep on the topics, trends, and news shaping the Android industry. We're also joined each week by influential members of the Android space, from developers to journalists to the people behind the company's building products that rely on Android to achieve success. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you have any feedback, please reach out to us at editors at esper.io, or shoot any of us a DM on Twitter.
1: So just for some context, as you may know, Google released Android 12 in October. They released the source code first on October 4th, and then the stable update for Pixel phone on 19th. So we're right off the release of one major Android operating system update. And we're not expecting another major update until early 2022, when Google will release Android 12 L. And it's kind of arguable whether or not that's actually going to be a major update, because for most devices, it's not going to be. It's targeted more at foldables and large screen devices like tablets. But the update that everyone who owns a smartphone and Android smartphone will look forward to is Android 13 in late 2022, most likely around September, October, if Google follows um, their pattern. I don't think it will be delayed like Android 12 was by a month because I I don't foresee them making any major UI overhauls like they did with 12 for Android 13. Um we're still many many months away from Android 13 regardless. But despite that, there have been a series of leaks and ongoing AOSP code changes that reveal some interesting information about the next Android update that's set for release late next year.
2: Yeah. And I think that we can kind of, you know, go from there. I think that we've got us consulted that They're going to show up from our side, at least. Where do you think we should start, Michelle? What are some of the big items that the 13 seems to be focusing on?
1: So one of the most significant changes that users should look forward to is the new app languages settings and. That feature is codenamed Panlingual because the idea is that currently in Android, you can set one system language in the languages and input settings, and that language is what's applied system-wide across settings interface, across the quick settings panel, and most applications will adopt that language, the language that you set in settings. Some applications do provide their own in-app language settings, but it's not very common. And the downside of that is say you're a, you know, you speak multiple languages or your native tongue is in English, but some applications don't have very good translations to your local tongue. Well, right now on Android, you basically have to deal with a really bad translation for that app while you set your system language to say your native tongue, which maybe might be like Italian or something, but in Android 13, What Google is doing is they're adding a new app language feature that will let you set the language on a per app basis. The application itself still needs to support that language. It needs to have the strings that are translated to that language. But this will make it so you don't have to choose one language for the majority of apps. You can pick your preferred language for each application that you want to
2: use. Now, there are some things that Google's been doing on the uh, developer side for Android apps around languages Terms so splitting your app bundles so is there any impact here the developers should be aware of because i know that developers for example could specify like hey you know like if my user uses us english only download us english asset pack versus you know whereas before you know a developer might put all of their international language assets in a version of an app because they need all of it apk bundles let them split that up now with panlingual will we see you know google leveraging ability to dynamically generate you know apks with multiple files like is that going to be part of this? that is an interesting
1: thought right now depending on the language that you have and depending on whether or not the app support that bundles whenever you go to download an app from the play store it does download the base apk the um the and a series of splits based on your architecture and your uh, screen layout and your language but and this app language feature is something that you set after you've installed the app. So what may end up happening is that after you install the app and then you change the language for that app, the Play Store will recognize that the configuration for that app has changed and, will, and may download the additional split for that language. We don't know, we don't have specific details on how this works because we don't have, you know, the source code for Android 13 or the documentation for this feature. But that's how I think it might address what you mentioned.
2: Yeah. And mobile language support is something that Google has, you know, it's not something we think of as much in America, obviously, but it's an extremely important feature of the platform given its global reach. And I bet this has been high on the list for people's requested feature for a long time.
1: Oh yeah. It's definitely something that I've seen many requests for and community developers have come up with like android modifications that enable this kind of functionality but the big problem with previous solutions is that changing the language on your device is a very heavy process it causes applications to restart it it's it's pretty slow in itself if you just go to your phone and try to change a language you'll notice it hangs for like two three five seconds maybe when it's changing the language and it's just not a very experience right now if you were to try to take what's happening right now and apply that on a per app basis. Every time you load an app that has a different language set, it would just hang for like five seconds and that's not good. So we don't know exactly how it'll work on Android 13 and I suspect it probably won't be a laggy experience because that would just be awful. A solution that one of the listeners on this call right now, Kieran, mentioned is that the configuration change might be applied only to the app sandbox so that other applications won't be affected.
2: Yeah. And I think that's probably, that's a really good point. You know, switching system languages, like the heaviness of that process, Google probably just wants to avoid users ever having to touch that setting to begin with, aside from initial set.
1: Oh, yeah. You'll you'll set the system language to be whatever your preferred language is. And then if there's a particular language that you find more comfortable in with a particular app, then you'll set that. And it'll be much more user-friendly that way. And I'm surprised it's taken... Android this long to add this feature, but you know, better live than never.
2: So what else um, do we know about N13 so far?
1: So this one, the next feature we are less sure about the original report on XDA developers is not 100% certain that this feature will be added, but if it is added in the way it's described, it would be a monumental change um, to the way it work on Android. So right now notifications can be posted by action after they're installed and they do not require any permissions from the user. The moment you install an application, it has the ability to post a notification. And if you've advertisements posted on your device, you know, that they can get pretty annoying because applications will see the notifications panel as a way to just promote themselves or promote their services. It's a common way for apps to try to get the user to re-engage with their application if they haven't opened it in a while, but. In the end, it's just not a very user-friendly experience because most users are not going to go into settings and then revoke the ability of an application to post notifications after they installed it. So what might be changing Android 13 is that Google is adding a new runtime permission called post notifications. And what a runtime notification or what a runtime permission is, is a permission that can only be granted by the user after the application has been installed and the user has to grant it by explicitly tapping "Allow" on a dialog that appears, like in the middle of the screen. So there's no way to like trick the user into automatically opting in to notifications. They have to explicitly grant the app permission to do that. And by doing so, that would probably significantly cut down on how many apps can abuse notifications for advertisements or spam, etc.
2: This would be a huge for developers and for users alike. And I, I think we've seen that there's a, there's an interesting dynamic of advertisements on Android because Google is an advertisement and they're more accepting, I think of that than Apple historically has been. And so on iOS patients, as far as I know, have always been often, they definitely have been as long as I've been. So I I think that that has always been kind of a philosophical disagreement that maybe Google had with Apple. But I have to say that, like, this seems like maybe a thing where, you know, in China, obviously, we see manufacturers of Android phones do all kinds of crazy things to notifications because, A, they don't run GMS and they don't have to worry about compatibility so much. And B, because the app spam situation in China, because they do not have a truly, like, One size fits all app store. There's a coalition of app stores and they're all responsible for keeping their own content. You can end up with a lot of bad content. Also, you know, other things exist everywhere. So you have to look out for, and I think that we were all for so long, like, why would you want such aggressive notification management on Android? Why would you want to lock down applications so hard? And I have to say I have turned the other direction where I used to be so against opt-in notifications. I am now I think I am pro-opt-in notification because more and more apps that I use have started abusing this. And even on iOS, it's still a problem. So one of the the things that developers do, or companies I should say, because I don't think individual people, this is a super cool thing to do, these re-engagement tactics that they use in their applications through the notification trade, basically like they start to obfuscate the ch- that are going to send you kind of promotion notifications. They make it more difficult. They vary it in the settings. With Android's notification channels, you do have good control over that, provided the app respects those channels and defines them properly. But on iOS, you know, I, I have apps where it's like, I get rid of notification permissions because I need to get notifications from that app, but I also still going to advertise to them. So this is a problem on all platforms to see that Google is moving that direction because that is, that is a huge switch. Right.
1: Traditionally, Google is kind of wary about making everything permission-gated because if you make everything opt-in, then users will be much more likely to just by default grant permission to everything. Because if you make it annoying for an application to actually do what you installed it, to do, then you're not going to be giving much thought to these permission prompts. So Google wants to add permissions for sensitive features, such as access to the camera or location, but they don't want to overdo it and make people just click allow, 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 allow. So, um, it is interesting to see that Google is finally, or may finally be taking this approach to notifications because being able to post a notification is one of the core functionalities of an app. And it's one of the ways that an app, as you said, can re-engage a user with the service if they haven't been using it for a while. But it seems like it's gotten to a point where so many applications have just abused that permission that um, they've decided to relegate it to a runtime permission.
2: And I, I think that, you know, the that's also just kind of an effect, I think, of, the way smartphones are used and what people use them for, you know, for example, gaming, you know, I think the games, you know, if you've ever played a mobile game, you know that most games are shameless abusers of notifications. Their developers are, let's say, a little more cutthroat about reading strategies than I think most tap developers. And so I think that, you know, probably as Android gaming has become more popular, which it has, you probably do see more and more users basically saying this, you know, like this game is spamming me or this app is spamming me. And probably Google does get pressure from some developers to be like, hey, listen, you know, like I'm getting like, you know, unfairly review bombed, you know, for this DK don't understand or that like, you know, either a user doesn't understand that my app is responsible for sending these DAs, or they don't, you know, understand the way to like, like disengage from them or to turn them off. So, I think that Google does have to consider both directions, but at the end of the day, like when I look at the experience on Google Chrome, like you have to opt in notifications on a web browser. And to me, it would be insanity if you didn't have to opt in. And so that's that's what's funny to me about this is it's very like it's very personal and it's very context dependent where you want notification. And I think that Google moving to an opt-in system is, you know, just honestly, it's respecting that more. And I, I think I'm definitely for it at this point. Like I've convinced myself and I would have not start there. Like probably if you asked me five years ago, I would have, been, this is a I would have said this is a terrible idea. Agreed. And
1: uh, the next major change that I'm sure many will think is a terrible idea, especially if you're a developer, but it's from a user's perspective, it's much appreciated is Google's ongoing war on background services, and I'm sure many developers absolutely hate the amount of restrictions on applications, but uh, from a user's perspective, it is nice to know that, you know, something is being done to curb applications that abuse how much access uh, they're allowed in the background in terms of permissions, in terms of services they can run, because, you know, you want your phone to last all day. You don't want a phone that day you want something that you can unplug in the morning and last you throughout the workday and maybe a second day without even having to recharge it um, overnight. So the feature that Google is supposedly working on is called TARE, T-A-R-E, which stands for the Android Resource. So basically, right now, over the years, Google has been addressing what applications can do in the background by changing how they queue tasks. So In the early days of Android, an application could start a, what's called a foreground service, and they could basically run tasks as they pleased whenever they wanted. But over the years, Google started to cut down on um, foreground services and the ability for apps to start them. And uh, right now, if an application wants to start a foreground service, they need to have a persistent notification, which is, which makes it very obvious that and applications running in the background. And that basically shames a lot of apps away from that. Like right now, if I pull down my notification panel on my Pixel 6, I see a persistent notification for it because I always want that app to be running because I want it to be able to respond to events in real time. But very few applications need to do that. And so what Google's come up with are APIs like Alarm or Job Scheduler and Work Manager. Some of these work on AOSP, some of these require Google uh, Play services to work. But basically, the google play services or the android system itself accept jobs from applications and they will it will decide how to queue them and it will run these jobs based on factors like whenever the device is plugged in whenever it has sufficient battery life etc that's how things work right now and in android 13 it seems like google will be enhancing this concept to basically adjust how many jobs an application can queue because right now there's a maximum of 50 that can be queued through these APIs, and it seems that the system right now is not very intelligent. It just lets applications queue jobs, and then the APIs, you know, the Google Play services decide when to run them based on like your charge rate, your charge level, etc. But what the Android research economy will do is it will assign, quote-unquote, credits to apps to spend. And the total number of credits that the Android Resist Economy will assign, what it's calling the balance, will depend on things like the current battery level. And how many credits are assigned to an app will depend on the type of task that the app wants to queue, is what my understanding is of tear. So basically, if an application wants to queue a task, it won't be treated the same as another application that wants to queue another task. The Android resource Economy will determine how many tasks can be queued based on the current battery level. And it will decide how many tasks a app can queue based on how important that task is. So like some applications will be able to queue more or have their task executed earlier than others based on the importance of those tasks. So it seems like the way that Android will be executing background tasks will be more intelligent in Android 13. And in effect, that will improve the battery life of your device
2: so this is this is another really in you know, for me because you know battery life is obviously like you know when i go between my iphone and my pixel like the battery life is very noticeably different and yet i, I don't want to turn this into the phone right show but like <laughs> my pixel six like notifications are incredibly delayed you know like that behavior is not actually like performing in the way I would like. And I do wonder, you know, on the Android team's end of things, like this sounds very complex with all what you're describing, like a system of like credits, obviously developers, if if they're not like actually exposed and having to think about this very actively, but the system's handling most of that, that's, you know, makes it a little different, but it feels like this is the same story we get from Google every year about battery life, which is heterogeneous processing this more efficiently, we are going to make sure apps respect like when they can schedule jobs and we are going to make this all more efficient and we're going to use automate or we're going to use AI or ML to like learn. And I have yet to see a lot of evidence of that actually working. Would you agree with that assessment? Or am I just like off base here?
1: I think the reason why we haven't seen like significantly improved battery life over the years is more to do with the hardware of the devices. Rather than the software. I think if we were to run the same like a current software release on really old hardware, we'd get amazing battery life. It's just that phones nowadays have just crazy high resolution displays, uh, 120 hertz variable refresh, super bright OLED panels, all this all these different sensors, like like the cameras. We have multi-camera arrays, all processing at the same time. It's just there's just so much on the internals that would drain band. Even with ground tasks, you know, being a lot more restricted and that should lead to better battery life. That's, that's not enough to keep up with the significant advancements in hardware.
2: So do we know if this is going to be like exclusively based on battery life or is it going to take other hardware like RAM into consideration too?
1: We don't know what the factors are, what, what terrible use to determine how to assign
2: credits or
1: what the total balance should be.
2: And I mean, we don't want to get into necessarily what Google will or won't. This is still not a released thing, but I guess, you know, what is, where do we see this having the biggest impact? I guess what kind of applications do we feel would have like an outsize effect, basically like what applications are going to look at this and say, oh no, this is really bad. Or conversely, which ones are going to say, oh, this is really good because I'm sure that there are apps out there that probably blurry on the line between abusive or just to send a lot of notifications and, you know, potential issues they could run into here with these changes.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, I am not entirely sure on about which applications would be the most affected and which applications would not be. From my understanding, the alarm manager API is used to schedule tasks that need to be executed at a specific time while the job scheduler slash work manager APIs are used to basically defer a task to an undefined point in time because it doesn't need to be executed immediately or at a specific time. There are just so many different kinds of apps on the market uh, that use these APIs. So I, I can't really tell you like with affected, which won't be. I know there will be certain kinds of applications that will be more affected than others. And there's, there might be a lot of complaints about the way this is implemented because I I'm not sure if it would be immediately obvious to a developer whether or not. Their app is less deprioritized over. We'll just have to see what kinds of document, what kinds of callbacks Google will provide to
2: apps. Yeah. Another facet of this is the effect basically on OEMs, because, you know, Michal, as you know, like when Google updates CPS and there are new battery saving features, CPS changes pretty significantly usually because Google doesn't want manufacturers changing these behaviors, at least not in ways. You know, I don't know the nuances of like a lot of the power save rules in CPS right now, or excuse me, CDD. CPS is the compatibility test suite. CDD is the document, but anyway, like DD is quite a gritty about like things you can and can't do with power saving features. Do you think it's likely that Google will, you know, have to enforce this on an OEM level?
1: I have a good feeling this feature will be, um, mandatory for Android 13 devices, but I don't know if Google will mandate the exact values or the parameters that they're setting up for Tear. I suspect that OEMs will be able to tweak the parameters that are that are listed in those screenshots posted by XDA developers. There, there will probably be a default and Google Play Services would probably be able to modify those values, but I think OEMs would probably have a level of control over
2: it. Yeah, because they do currently with the adaptive battery settings, there are some values they change. And I think that I don't want to point fingers here. We've heard of manufacturers adjusting these things such that break the feature per se, but it makes it a lot less effective. I think that we've seen some phone companies that like, you know, crank those things all the way off so that you get all of your notifications instantly. But battery life is negatively impacted. And then we see it in the other direction where some OEMs crank up asynchronous like notifications so far that you can go like a half hour and not get a notification on your phone. So controlling the consistency of that experience is not like a, a you know a concrete thing for Google. You know, they've created guardrails, but you know, we don't even know until the feature is announced and then the phones that use the feature come out and how it'd perform on those phones, we don't even know how effective it is necessarily. So that's what makes it hard with stuff like battery life too. Hardware, like you said, is a great point. You know, the phones are simply doing more work and we have to consider that, but on the other side of things with the software, you know, that's, that's also something that's changing, you know, year over year. So with, with stuff with power, it's, it's really hard to say, because I think that manufacturers are going to have really strong, um, about how to manage their, you know, devices power. Because it is theirs, they own it. And they may also have a different impression of like what their users want and the experience they, Samsung may have a very different, you know, set of like assumptions they're making in terms of how users want to receive their notifications and how critical that is versus say OnePlus and Google makes some accommodations there for them to, you know, tweak certain settings accordingly. But problem is that for developers, I assume in general, that's very opaque. Agreed and there are a few more major changes that
1: i'd like to mention the next one is possible full support for bluetooth low energy audio so if you're unfamiliar the bluetooth sig the basically the organization that defines bluetooth standard they announced the low energy audio codec and standard and basically the promises that um, it makes is that it will enable high quality audio streaming at a very low power without massively increasing the data rate. So basically, it's just a significant improvement across the board for audio playback and audio streaming over Bluetooth. And uh, right now, although there are multiple Bluetooth chips on the market, on devices that are shipping right now that support LE Audio, Android itself does not support the new standard or the new codec. But that might change with Android 13 because Google has been working on an open source LC3 encoder, LC3 is the codec that's used for Bluetooth LE audio. And that's been submitted to AOSP and they're also working on the settings hooks for the new codec within developer options within, within the framework. So, um, my guess is that Android 13 will probably be the first release where Android itself will support selecting LE audio as the A2DP source codec, but we'll have to wait and see if device makers actually have audio products on the market that support LE Audio because you need both the audio sync and source. So we have the source, which is the smartphone, the device running Android 13 with the requisite Bluetooth chip, but you need a sync, which would be the earbud or headphone that supports LE Audio. And I don't think there are any on the market right now that support it.
2: And just for some context here, I'm reading up on this because the reason we care about this, this Bluetooth LE audio feature, it's enabling things like basically like you can have, you know, you can have two people listening to AirPods at the same time on an iPad. Well, Bluetooth is going to be able to do that now in theory, which is great because everybody wants that. It's basically increasing the amount of bandwidth, not, not increasing the amount of bandwidth, but the amount of audio you over, um, deck. So like it's much more efficient. So yeah, that that's a great example, you know, of another feature that Google has to implement again on that OS level, and how things move kind of slowly. Granted, um, this is pretty so that's that's pretty fast movement by Google standards, but probably that's still means consumer product impact will be till early 2023 at the earliest.
1: <laughs> and um the next change that I've that I believe Google is working on based on comments made by Googlers is that there's worrying work done to decouple Wi-Fi scanning from location permissions. So for some context, prior to Android 12, in order for an application to scan for nearby Bluetooth devices, it would have to request the user to grant it location permission. And that led to a lot of confusion whenever Google wanted to roll out the COVID-19 contact tracing apps because that would require scanning for nearby Bluetooth devices. But doing so would, show a prompt asking the user to grant a location permission. And so that led to a lot of users thinking these tracing apps are tracking my location when all they're doing is just scanning for nearby Bluetooth devices. So what Google ended up doing in Android 12 is they added a new nearby device permission so that apps wouldn't need to request for location access, just to scan for nearby Bluetooth devices. Um, it seems like Android 13 will do something similar uh, with Wi-Fi scanning. So in order for an app to scan for nearby Wi-Fi access points in Android 13, they may not need to ask for location permissions anymore. We haven't seen that brought up in any any of the images that are posted by XA developers, but a Googler has commented saying that that's one of their goals for Android 13. And the reason why right now, if you're wondering why Android requires location permission just to scan for nearby Bluetooth devices or Wi-Fi access points is that being able to get a list of nearby devices is actually something that can be used to infer your device's location. So that's the reason why they tied it to location permissions. But it just ended up confusing users who thought that devices that just needed to scan for those devices for legitimate purposes, maybe to connect to them or to find a better access point nearby, were actually just tracking the location. So Google scrapped that idea and they're decoupling those two now
2: yeah and i think that's a a semantic issue i mean for example you could also say like if you open google uh, maps ar mode like that's not a really good example because that's using location permission anyway but if you were using an ar experience that could figure out where you were based on what the camera was looking at is that a form of location tracking well yes it is it needs to be tied to a location permission And things obviously get super muddy there. And I think that's probably where they came down in my discussion with the scanning behavior for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, that it's too nuanced
1: to explain to users. I think a really great example of where this confusion manifests is with Nearby Share, basically Android's version of... um, I forgot the name of the iOS file sharing solution, but basically Nearby Share is the solution that lets you quickly share files with nearby android devices but right now if you were to use nearby share you would have to grant the service access to location and that might make you wonder why does a solution that just shares files with nearby devices need access to my location and the answer is it actually doesn't what it's doing is it scans for nearby bluetooth devices and then once it once you once the user picks a device to connect to it initiates a Wi-Fi direct connection to that device. And that device, the other, the receiving device needs to scan for local Wi-Fi access points and connect to that access point. So that's where the location permission comes in. And that's led to users thinking that nearby share is actually tracking their location, and that's not the case. So by decoupling Wi-Fi scanning from location permissions, nearby share in Android 13 will likely no longer ask for the user location, ask
2: for the nearby permission. Thank you. I wonder if we should just start putting a giant sticker on every phone. When you open it, it says your phone knows where you are. Do you accept that? <laughs> because at this point it's kind of true, no matter what. Anything else that we should, we should hit on Michal before we end this week.
1: There are a lot of other smaller changes that I'd love to talk about, but can't. You'll just have to wait and see but there is one that there is public evidence of in AOSP and that I actually wrote blog, wrote a blog post about two weeks ago now. It's about how Google will use virtualization in Android 13. It's quite a complex topic, but I run down, I, I basically document the necessity of Google standardizing the virtual machine framework in Android and what they're doing to bring virtualization and how they're going to use it. I recommend giving that a read. It's part of the Android Desert Bites column that I write, which is only accessible if you sign up for the Android Edge newsletter.
2: Yep, and you should absolutely sign up for that. It goes out every month, includes an embed of Michelle's column, which again, like I'll said, is exclusive to that newsletter. If you want to sign up for that newsletter, go to blog.esper.io and i am typing that in right now yes to verify it's up at the top right page on the desktop says subscribe um, to our android newsletter it's called the android edge and um, we'd appreciate it if you all did that we post these every week about android because Esper is a company that cares deeply about android we build an operating system based on aosp and so we are immensely interested in what goes on under the hood of google's open source operating system so thank you for joining us everyone this week and uh, we'll be back next week uh, with the uh, the holiday over and he not at CES. And apparently almost
0: nobody else either anyway. So we'll catch you next time. And thanks for listening, everybody. Android Bytes is powered by Esper. If you're building an Android device, commercial, consumer, or industrial, Esper can help. We power Android fleets with our management and operating system solutions. It scales up to millions of devices and can help you apply powerful automation to provisioning, deploying, and updating your fleet. For more, check out esper.io. That's E-S-P-E-R dot